Well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I'm not preaching this morning. Uh, the bad news is I am teaching this morning. The length of time is going to be about the same. The difference is when I'm preaching, I hit the pulpit a few more times than when I'm teaching. So I hope you have your Bible open. We're going to do some verse-by-verse expository teaching once we lay some foundation and background on a very important and usually misunderstood passage of Scripture that hopefully we will clarify this morning. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn to verse 53. If you do not, we'll have the verse on the screen. This whole chapter we'll be working through. It's 72 verses, so we are just going to pick verse 53 for our Scripture text. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you, or pay special attention, I'm about to say something significant. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in Him. Dealing with difficult passages, we're going to deal with the subject of eat my flesh. Well, as I said, today we're going to study a passage that you probably have not studied expositorily before. And no doubt it is a passage that you are familiar with. And no doubt you probably at some point in time have been confused by it. Now, you've heard me say before, and I will say again, the primary reason that we have so many different denominations today is we divide over passages of Scripture that really aren't confusing if we read the Bible from Jewish eyes. Now, unfortunately, early in Christianity, the church overall became fiercely anti-Semitic. After Augustine and his influence on Catholicism, and then, of course, the Protestant denominations that came out of Catholicism, the idea was is that the Jews were the Christ killers. And we wanted to disassociate our history and ourselves from any Jewish roots. And then obviously when you are in the 1600s and you're reading a passage of Scripture, you're reading it in your context. You're in the 1700s, you're reading a passage of Scripture, you're reading it in the context of the world in which you live. It's important to read it as a Jew would have understood it in the first century. So as I say, reading it with Jewish eyes. Now, two weeks from today, we'll be celebrating the resurrection. And as I said in the announcements, a week from Tuesday, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper. We've been asked why we do it once a year. I'll tell you more about that on that Tuesday night, but we'll lay a little groundwork for that this evening. But I thought, or excuse me, uh, uh, next week, but I thought that this would be a perfect um, uh, opportunity to uh, go through this great sermon by Jesus, verse by verse and in context. Now, Scripture text, verse 53, said this, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Really? We're supposed to literally eat His flesh and drink His blood. Well, Catholicism has taken this as literal. In fact, in 1215 in the Council of Trent, it was declared this doctrine of transubstantiation, where that, in layman's terms, means that the substance of the bread and the wine actually is transformed into the literal substance of the body and blood of Christ. You say, well, Brother Ball, don't you take the Bible literally? Well, yes, I do. The Bible does speak very literally. But the Bible also uses parable. The Bible uses riddles. The Bible uses metaphors, comparisons, illustrations. 
Jewish historical references and Jewish figures of speech. And all of that must be known and understood. Now, a basic principle for Bible study is this. If the plain sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense, lest it become nonsense. But is this literally instructing people to eat Jesus' body and drink His blood in order to be saved? Before we get to the text, let me offer some advice about Bible study in general and then make three brief observations about this passage of Scripture. First, the advice. When studying a challenging passage where there are obvious cultural communicational obstacles, and if you're not fully grasping the illustrations that are used, go through the passage of Scripture and highlight or underline the solid, specific, clear truth claims that are straightforward. You remember that Scripture will never contradict Scripture. What you're reading will align with what you already have read and know to be true in other passages of Scripture. And as I have said before, this is much like navigating a stream, wanting to avoid the water. So you look for those exposed stones to step out on, and then you can cross that stream by stepping on the stones that you know are firm and solid and reliable. So with that being laid, let's cover three points. Point number one. Jesus is speaking a spiritual truth in John 6, yet His listeners understood Him literally. Now, folks, this wasn't the first time that happened. In fact, this happens routinely throughout the book of John. Remember back in John 2, Jesus speaks to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem about destroying the temple. And He said, in three days, I will raise it up again. Well, they took Him to be referring to the literal temple, but in fact, He was referencing His own death and resurrection, speaking of His own body. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus responded with this, you mean I've got to get back into my mother's womb? Nicodemus took him literally when Jesus was talking spiritually. In John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at Sychar's well and talking to her about living water. And she responded, sir, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. She took him literally when he was speaking of spiritual matters. Jesus, when He was traveling with His disciples back to Bethany after Lazarus' death, said in John 11 that Lazarus was sleeping. His disciples responded, well, won't that be good for him, Master? Sleeping is a good thing if we want him to get well. Well, then Jesus bluntly said, no, 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 no. Lazarus is not literally sleeping. What I mean is Lazarus is dead. In fact, verse 63 of this very chapter says clearly that this passage is dealing with a spiritual truth, not a material, physical, tangible truth. Kind of like when Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if I have told you physical things and you can't understand that, how in the world are you going to possibly understand the spiritual things that I'm trying to teach you as a greater uh, spiritual truth? So, Jesus is speaking spiritual truth here, but the listeners understood Him literally. Point number two, this couldn't have been literally, as this was specifically forbidden in the law. They were not to consume live animals. They were not to drink blood. The blood was to be drained from the animals. As a matter of fact, the, the sacrificial offerings were to be slain in a humane way, and the blood was reserved to being placed at the, at the base of the altar. The blood was to set aside for God. Now, 
If he says to this crowd, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, naturally this bunch of Jews would have been grossed out. But was he speaking literally? He could not have been. Because this would have been a clear violation of the law. And the scripture clearly teaches us that Jesus did not come to destroy the law. But he came to, in fact, fulfill the law. Point number three. This passage is consistent with other physical metaphors and for spiritual truths that John records throughout his gospel. John chapter 7. Jesus claimed to be the living water. Yet we don't have any churches around town that have pitchers of water down here with the pastor pouring glasses of living water and telling you to drink the living water so that you can be saved. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But we don't put tanning lights in here with Jesus written across the face of them and shine them down on the audience saying, if you step in the light, then you're saved. We recognize that it's a metaphor and not speaking literally. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. But we don't come to church on Sunday mornings and everybody follow me around the room going bah, bah, bah. We know it's a metaphor. John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. But we don't have the name of Jesus above the door entering into the auditorium with a sign that says, uh, all who enter here are born again. We know that that is a figure of speech being used to teach a spiritual truth. Finally, in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, yet we don't hand out pots and potting soil when you arrive here on Sunday morning. We recognize that that is an illustration being used to teach a spiritual truth. Now again, folks, I am not trying to be flippant. I'm not trying to be unkind. But why is all the emphasis placed on John 6 to be taken literally when we neglect these other obvious metaphors throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John. Now with these three truths being reestablished and that fundamental underlying uh, help in Bible study, let's attack the Scripture but first review the setting. John the Baptist had shown up on the scene, this crazy evangelist drawing everyone's attention. Preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jews heard that the kingdom of Israel is about to be reestablished. The Jews heard by that that King Messiah is going to return and sit on the throne. We must be close to throwing off this boot of tyranny that's been placed upon us by the Roman Empire. That's what they're preparing for. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then all of a sudden, this man shows up one day when John is baptizing at Bethabara, just beyond Jordan, across from uh, uh, Jericho, about three miles uh, east of Jericho. And as John is baptizing, he stops and points at this individual and says, Behold, there he is. That is the Lamb of God, which came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was immersed that day in the waters of the Jordan. The Spirit of God descended from heaven like a dove and anointed Him. And the voice of the Father cried out, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. 
Jesus had gone back up to the Galilee. He had performed the miracle of turning the water into wine at Cana. He had attended the first Passover in Jerusalem, recorded in John chapter 2. And he had cleansed the temple, accusing them of turning his father's house into a house of merchandise. He had then, in John 3, had had that private meeting with Nicodemus, that respected teacher and member of the Sanhedrin. Then on his way back up to the Galilee after those high holy days... He insisted that they travel due north through Samaria. And there he met the woman at Sychar's well. Then he went back up to Nazareth, his hometown. And that passage that we see in Luke chapter 4 where he was rejected by his own hometown after reading from Isaiah 61 and saying that I'm the Messiah. This is happening right here and now before your very eyes. It was at that point that he had moved to Capernaum. And that became the central place of his ministry and his home. It was then that he went up and preached the Sermon on the Mount. Shortly thereafter, at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, he had come back down to Jerusalem and had healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. It was then that he sent out the twelve to preach the gospel of the kingdom only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. After they had returned, Jesus had gotten word that John the Baptist had in fact been martyred. He was tired. He needed some rest. Chapter 6 of John opens telling us that Passover was soon coming. This is a significant note. We'll double back on this as we get to the end. Jesus was tired before they headed south to Jerusalem for the Passover. He needed some R&R. But there was no place for Jesus to escape. The crowds were now thronging about him and following him, and he had compassion on them. He taught them. And then, of course, in John 6, it talks about the feeding of the 5,000 men plus their wives and children, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 Jews that were fed that day with five loaves of barley bread and two small fish. And then after that miracle, they collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now, my mom could stretch a budget, but that's stretching a budget right there. After this, he placed his disciples on a ship a sailing vessel down at the shore of the Sea of Galilee and sent them across and said that he would catch up with them later. That night is when he walked on those rough waters of the Sea of Galilee and rescued his disciples and then they went on to the other side. This picture is actually where I believe the feeding of the 5,000 took place. Down here south, Maybe about two inches out of this picture, maybe just less than a mile, is the Roman city of Tiberias. Up here to the north, as you go north around the Sea of Galilee and around the bend, maybe another mile to the north, you'd come to the ancient city of Capernaum. This is Mount Arbel. By the way, Magdala, Mary of Magdalene, sits right down there at the base of this mountain. I personally believe that it was this location that he performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And it was here that he had sent the disciples to come across the sea on a fishing vessel. And then he went back up into the mountain to pray. Beautiful view from that top of Mount Arbel. And you can see the Sea of Galilee isn't a huge lake, really about 15 miles in total length from north to south, maybe 3 to 5 miles at its widest point going across it. But it was from this view that Jesus witnessed His disciples toiling in the storm and walked out to rescue them. Well, now we are down to John six twenty-two, 
And it is the next day after Jesus had fed the 5,000, after he had sent the disciples across the sea, and then met them in the midst of the sea and went on to the other side. The Scripture tells us that many of those Jews had returned. Many came from Tiberias, that Roman city that I just pointed out a moment ago. They knew that the disciples had left. They had seen Jesus put them on the boat. They knew that Jesus should be around there somewhere, but they could not find Him, and they were diligently looking for Him. So they expanded their search. Well, where did they go look for Him? Well, verse 24 says that they worked all the way up to Capernaum, which made sense since that is where He lived. So they set out to find Jesus, and they did find Him. And when they found Him, they said, Teacher, my teacher, how did you get here? Now, remember, He fed them lunch the day before And at that point, hey, there's a turkey in every pot. Let's make him our king. But there's no indication, ladies and gentlemen, that they believed that he was the Messiah. And as the conversation makes clear, they rejected any idea that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah. Obviously, he was a prophet, perhaps even to the stature of Moses. And their opinion was, as long as he feeds us, we'll follow him. But they were not concerned about spiritual matters. In verse 27, Jesus responds to their question, how did you get here? They really weren't concerned with how he got there. What they wanted was another meal. And Jesus said this, don't focus so much on meat that perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Let me just ask you a question. Based upon that right there, what is the emphasis of Jesus' conversation here? Let me give you a a hint everlasting life. And please understand that of the Gospels, they all address specific issues. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is presented as the Son of God. The Gospel of John, more than any of the other Gospels, focuses on spirituality more than anything else and presents Jesus as deity, the Son of God that was promised and prophesied beginning from chapter 3, verse 15 in the book of Genesis. Okay? But, but strive for the meat that endureth. Strive for everlasting life, which the Son of Man, ladies and gentlemen, that term is a term for the Messiah. If you are a Jew, you recognize that Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, identifies the promised Messiah as the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I'm bringing eternal life. And just like at Sychar's well, Jesus redirects them from the temporal, physical needs and the temporal illustration to the eternal, spiritual needs. And again, the focus of this whole passage is I'm the Messiah. Are you going to believe in me or are you not going to believe in me? Verse 28, and they said unto him, well, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Let me translate. They're not asking how they can do miracles because they themselves know they are not prophets. But they are asking, how can we please God? Notice the mindset of the legalistic Jews. What must we do? What things must we do in order to please God? What deeds or works must we do for this eternal life to which you're referencing? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. (laughs) Believe on He whom He hath sent. Believe on me. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, You must be born again. Nicodemus said, What? I'm an old man. Am I supposed to get back into my mother's womb and be born again? Jesus said, No, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You've already been born of the flesh. You need to be born again spiritually. Here, let me tell you what I mean. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's the point? How to have everlasting life. What's the point here? Jesus says to the crowd, this is how you receive everlasting life. Believe in Me. Now, notice their disbelief in their response. And also, folks, please forgive me if you're new here. It's, it's important. I give you the background. There's background behind all these stories. As Jews, they were well aware of it. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses made a messianic prophecy saying that one day there would be a prophet a lot like him raised up from among the Jews. And remember what Moses did? Moses was a Jew raised up from among the Jews that God used to rescue the Jews and bring them back to Him. When they were at Sinai, the people heard the voice of God at the mountain. They saw the fire. They saw and heard the thunder. And they feared the voice of God. And they feared His presence. And they said, Moses, you go talk to God and leave us out of it. You bring us the message from God. Well, Moses then went on to say, there is going to be another prophet a lot like me that prophet specifically and he is going to speak the words of God and when he shows up you better listen to what he has to say does that make sense is everybody tracking with me this is not dynamic Bible preaching this morning this is a thorough study of the scripture so is everybody still tracking with me understanding what the Jewish mind would be thinking and on this whole conversation was Jesus that guy now, as you go farther, farther or further through the books of prophecy, you'll find out that that guy and the Messiah are one and the same. But this is the question. Hey, Moses fed us in the wilderness. Hey, Jesus fed us the other day. Jesus, are you that guy? Are you really that? You claim to be the Messiah. Are you really that guy? In fact, if you are that guy, prove it to us. Verse 30. Then said, therefore, they unto him, huh, do a miracle. We may see and then we'll believe. Show us some of your work. In fact, let us give you a suggestion as to what you might do for us. Our fathers did eat man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This group obviously must have been Baptists because they immediately were thinking about lunch again. They say, hey, if you're that prophet, um, why don't you prove it with a miracle? You know, Joe, uh, uh, Moses pr provided manna from heaven and fed his people. Why don't you feed us another free meal? Jesus corrects their mistaken credit in verse 32. It wasn't Moses that gave you manna, but my Father fed you physically with manna, and my Father is feeding you again. This time, He's feeding you spiritually with Me, for the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And then they said unto Him, Lord, give us this bread. Now stop right here and think about what that conversation has taken place. It sounds identical to the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus is sitting there and answered to her and said, Whosoever drinketh of this well water is going to thirst again, young lady. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him as a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Identical to what these Jews said in verse 34. Lord, give us this bread. The woman at Sychar's well, Lord, give us this water. Verse 35, here's how Jesus responds. I am the bread of life. 
By the way, as you go through this Gospel of John, you'll find out that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. By the way, where did you find another reference to the good shepherd? Anybody remember Psalm 23? When Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd, understand, he wasn't just claiming to be a good shepherd. He was claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. The bread which came from heaven, which came from God, is to give eternal life. I am that gift. My flesh is what must be given. My blood is what must be given. For you to have eternal life. And what's the emphasis? Believe on me. Guys, is this confusing at all? The topic, the, the line of thought, the reasoning, the argument, the focus. It's very consistent with everything else we've read in John. Very consistent with John 3, John 4, John 7, John 8, John 10. You name it. Verse 36, But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and you don't believe. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, that's important, we're going to come back to that, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose none, but should raise all of them again at that last day. Again, I am the resurrection. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth me and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus is claiming to be the promised Messiah. He says, I am the Lamb of God sent from heaven. Remember we talked a while ago about those stepping stones. Look at these verses of absolute clarity. That's consistent with what you already know to be true. I am the Lamb of God. This is a perfect salvation message. It says, the Father calls, you've got to believe. Whosoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Pretty simple. Anybody confused by what we're talking about here? No confusion, right? Now look at their response. Jesus said, I came from heaven. I'm the one that came from heaven. I'm the one that came from heaven. Here's their response. No, you didn't. You're Joseph's boy. We saw you grow up in Nazareth. We've known you since you were just a little guy. You didn't come down from heaven. What's the promise here, ladies and gentlemen? You know what the answer. Everybody's always afraid when the speaker asks that question. You're always afraid you're going to answer it wrong. But you know what it is. What's the problem? Unbelief. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The Father has sent me down from heaven. In me is eternal life. I am the resurrection. And they said, no, you aren't. We, we, you grew up in Nazareth. You're, you're Joseph and Mary's kid. You, you're, you're not the Messiah. You're not that guy. Jesus, without skipping a beat, continued to hammer away at the truth. He said in verse 43, don't murmur among yourselves. 
No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up. Again, I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. Again, back to Moses and Deuteronomy. And they shall be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father comes to me. Jesus is building directly on this truth that he is the Messiah. He is that prophet which Moses referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He is a fulfillment of this specific prophecy. And Jesus goes on, Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father comes to me, not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. In other words, I'm the only one that has seen the Father personally. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Hey, your fathers ate physical bread that kept them alive temporarily in the wilderness, but they're all dead now. I am the bread which came down from heaven that a man can eat thereof and not die. And I said, when he says, says there in that, in that verse, this is the bread, I promise you, he's pointing to himself, this is the bread which came down from heaven that a man eat of, he shall not die. Now notice again, the physical bread sustains physical life, but belief in Jesus, trusting Jesus, deals with your spiritual life. Deals with your eternal soul and relationship with God. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus, when talking to Nicodemus, after that conversation about the new birth, and how can I be born again when I'm an old man? Jesus began what led up to verse 16 is verse 14. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, the Messiah, be lifted up. Verse 14, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what He said in verse 14. That's what He's saying here. I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. I will give my flesh for the life of this world. This seemed to be fairly clear, somewhat clear. Are you tracking with me? Okay. And after all this, what was their response? Well, they were mad. You know why they were mad? Let me tell you why they were mad. They weren't getting their prayer answered the way they wanted it answered. All they were concerned about is another free lunch. Jesus said, I, I took care of that. I fed you yesterday. Now I want to talk about your soul. Now, and we don't want to talk about spiritual things. We just want another free lunch. At this, verse 52 says, the Judeans disputed with one another, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? By this time, the Scripture says, they reached the synagogue in Capernaum. So remember, they started out at Mount Arbel. They went north trying to look for Jesus. What were they looking for? Spiritual truth. Were they looking for the Messiah? Nope. They were looking for another free meal. They had fed him the day before. He said, hey, we like this guy's politics. A chicken in every pot. We, we can follow him. They finally trace Jesus down, chase him down. He's up somewhere around Capernaum. Jesus begins this conversation, said, listen, take your mind off your stomach and think about your eternity. Moses may have, my father gave your, your forefathers bread in the wilderness to sustain them temporarily, but they're all dead now. The father has sent me, my flesh, my blood for you that you can have eternal life. Now, by this time, again, they'd reached the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus never tries to make it easier. In fact, He gets tougher. But again, remember the illustration of the stepping stones. Where is the misunderstanding here? 
We see consistently in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He has sent. Verse 35, He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 40, uh, uh, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. By the way, that is significant. Don't overlook that phrase. When he says, I will raise you from the dead, again, that is a claim of deity. Believe in me, I will raise you up on that last day. John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Jesus said, Hey, I've been sent from heaven. I'm the Messiah. I'm the bread of life. They said, No, you didn't. We saw you grow up in Nazareth. Now, they'd already rejected. Now, they were just making excuses because they were mad. They weren't getting what they wanted. But they weren't concerned about spirituality. All they wanted was lunch. Jesus didn't make the message any easier, even as he was losing his audience. And again, why was he losing the audience? They were unbelievers, and all they wanted was lunch. And Jesus was now trying to segue over and focus on eternity. None of it mattered. more they didn't want to listen to Jesus, it's funny, the more he fanned the flames of irritating them. Dan preached a couple of weeks ago an unoffensive gospel. Sorry, the gospel does offend. It's amazing how many times that Jesus offended those around him. And his disciples said, Master, don't you know you offended them? And he said, so. The blind will lead the blind and they'll both fall into the ditch. Oh, well. Verse 53. In the summary, Jesus says, if all you want from me is lunch, I'm done with that. I'm offering to give you me. I'm offering to give you the meat of eternal life. My flesh, my blood will be poured out for you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, again, the term of the Messiah, and drink His blood, there is no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. You know what? I think he's just rubbing salt in the wound here. You read all the way from the beginning, chapter, verse 1, all the way down to verse 52, Jesus really is trying to uncomplicate things. He is really trying to make it understandable. Trust me, trust me, trust me. No, 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 quit thinking about lunch. Not talking about manna from heaven. By the way, Moses didn't give you the manna. My father gave you the manna. But now it's more than just sustaining your physical life. We're talking about eternal life. I'm the bread of life. I've been sent from heaven. Receive me. Trust me. Believe me. They keep going back to lunch. Going back to lunch. Keep going back to lunch. So now Jesus just kind of sticks it in there and twists a little bit. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live. Again, these are metaphors. Think back to John 2, John 3, John 4, John 7, John 8. Uh, this is uh, the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat. So again, there's clarity. We're not talking about physical bread. Not as your fathers did eat and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This, of course, troubled their hearers. Let me add, let me add this too, ladies and gentlemen. You want clarity on what it takes for salvation? By the way, we, we, we walk a, a tightrope. 
I, I want people to understand that salvation is so simple. It is literally a heart's cry away, a sincere heart's cry. By the way, it, it was not easy, but Jesus did the hard part. Our sin had to be paid for. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was bloody. He was crucified. He experienced excruciating. The word excruciating comes from the term crucifixion. He experienced excruciating pain on our behalf, in our place, suffering for us, dying for us. And we are raised again in Him by faith in His finished work. So He's done the hard part. Salvation is easy. It's just a heart's cry away, a sincere heart's cry away. If all you say, if all it is is somebody knocked on your door, is taking you through the plan of salvation, and gets you down to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and you close your eyes and say, Jesus, come into my heart and save me, amen, and then you never follow it up, never go to church, never have a desire to, to uh, be reflective of the Scripture, allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, and become more and more sanctified. If you don't have that desire, then you have just prayed an empty prayer. Folks, there was a time where I stood before a church, and when the pastor, my dad, asked me, do you take this woman whom you hold by the hand to be your lawful and wedded wife? I said, I do. You know what? I've had 32 years to prove that I was serious. If I had just said, I do. I now pronounce you husband and wife, and I high-fived her and then ran off with the bridesmaid on a honeymoon You would have said, you know what, I think that boy was lying. I heard him say, I do. He mouthed the right words, but I don't think he really meant it. So when you really understand that you're lost in your sins, and you really understand that Jesus died for your sins, and that the tomb really was empty, and that's the evidence. Jesus said, you want a miracle that's going to prove I am who I say I am? Three days and three nights after I go into the tomb, I'm coming out. Because of the empty tomb, we know He's the Lord. Now, at that point, we can either fall on our knees and cry out to Him as Savior and surrender to Him as Lord, or we can say, no thanks. But a sincere heart's cry will save you. How do we know that? The thief on the cross was the simplest example of a person getting saved. The thief on the cross was not covered, if you want to try to get technical, he couldn't have been covered by the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. By the way, we butcher that. There is only salvation in Christ. Paul goes into great detail in the book of Hebrews to clarify any possible misunderstanding. All those old, what we call Old Testament sacrifices were done in faith and obedience, looking forward as a testimony to the coming Lamb of God, whose blood was sufficient to take away our sins. Now we are looking back at the finished work of Jesus Christ. But it's very clear in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, Paul says, The blood of bulls and goats and lambs don't take away any sins. It's all Jesus. So Adam is going to be in heaven the same way that I will be in heaven, by faith in the finished work of the promised Messiah that he was told about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. All the Old Testament saints will be in heaven because of belief in the promise 
of the finished work of that Lamb of God, which would come and take away the sins of the world. Read Psalm 22. Read Psalm 16. Read Isaiah 53. Read Daniel 9. All of this throughout Scripture, talking about the coming sacrifice for our sins on behalf of us. But the thief on the cross is the perfect example. Because he was hanging there, and the Scripture tells us that that morning, there were three guys, Jesus hanging in the middle. He was innocent. Two guilty robbers, one on each side. They began at 9 o'clock. They were both mocking Jesus. Over the course of the events of that day, I don't know what it was specifically, but you know if those were Jewish boys, they had been brought up in a Jewish home, and they had been taught the Jewish traditions, and obviously they went astray, but they were taught right. And over the course of that morning, as they heard the words of God, and as they witnessed some of the miracles, I would think that the absolute darkness at noonday might have gotten somebody's attention. And it probably did. But as these guys were cursing the crowd around them, there was Jesus saying, John, I'm, not, I'm going to be gone now. I want you to take care of my mother. Mom, John is now going to take care of you. Wow. He's saying it up there dying in agony on the cross, and he's concerned. He wants to make sure his, his birth mother was taken care of. He says such things as, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't rain fire down on them, Lord. Give them a chance. It's not really murder. It's manslaughter. They don't understand that I'm really the Messiah. They're just not getting it. Father, the, the, the statements that this man made on the cross, whatever it was over the course of the morning, one of the two thieves recognized that this really is the Messiah. This is Him. And he said this, Lord, remember me. When you establish your kingdom. That's a very Jewish statement. But it would be akin to us as you are the Messiah. I'm trusting in you. Forgive me. Save me. I belong to you. That was a confession of faith. And what did Jesus say to him? Well, son, if you can get down and get baptized, then you'll be saved. Well, son, if you can crawl down off of there and come over here and take a bite out of my right calf and, and swallow that, then you'll be saved. <laughs> oh, I, oh no, it's not the new covenant yet. The veil of the temple hasn't been rent. Son, if you can get down and you can quickly go give a sin offering and a trespass offering at the temple, then you can be saved. No, all that guy had time to do, if you want to see the simplicity of salvation, all he could do just hours before he died, hanging on a cross, was look to Jesus by faith. And what did Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. If you take Jesus at his word, that man was saved. And a little while later in that day, when they came and broke his legs, and he suffocated and died, he was instantly in the presence of the Lord Jesus, and still is, and will be there to welcome us to heaven one of these days. Well, obviously, Jesus gets down here as he's twisting the knife. And he's really just, I think, just teasing them as much as anything right now because of their unbelief. He's really irritating them. Again, they were thinking of their stomachs. Jesus was talking about spirituality. The Scripture says that, he said, does this offend you? Have I offended you? <laughs> Again, Jesus seemed to be concerned about offending people. No, apparently not. He did it routinely. 
says, have I offended you by what I've said? Not the eating of the flesh. It's the fact that he claimed to be the one prophesied by Moses. The eating of the flesh happened to be a convenient excuse. Again, remember verse 41, Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, no, you didn't. You're Joseph's son. You grew up in Nazareth. That is the issue right there. That was the point of unbelief. Now remember, they'd asked for a miracle. Okay, if you provide a miracle, then we'll believe. They suggested, what did they suggest? Another free lunch. Jesus is, in fact, offering them a miracle. And here's what it is. When, and what, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend back up to where He was before? Will you then believe in Me? Because you don't now. Will you believe in Me when you see the Son of Man, again, the Son of Man, a Messianic term, ascend back into heaven? Again, sounds a lot like Nicodemus. Chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Oh, I'm old. How can I be born again? No, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You've been physically born. You must be born again spiritually. Jesus goes on and says, it is the Spirit that needs life. The flesh doesn't profit from this. The words that I speak unto you, they are spiritual and they are life. But there are some of you that don't believe. Again, what is the point of the whole conversation? That right there. Some of you don't believe. It's not about bread. It's about belief. That's the focus of this whole chapter. Remember, Moses had said, there's a prophet that's going to come after me, like unto me. He's going to bring you the Word of God. You better listen to what he has to say. And the question was, are you that prophet? Are you the Messiah? Jesus said, yes, many times over. And they said, no, you aren't. You grew up in Nazareth. We knew your parents. We saw you when you were a little boy. So from this point on, the Scripture says that many quit following him. Why? They didn't believe he was the Messiah. All they wanted was another lunch. Notice Jesus didn't chase them down and bring them back to church. He didn't give in. They didn't listen to His words. Jesus wound up saying to the twelve, Are you all going to leave too? And notice Peter's response. It's not about lunch. Peter answered Him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Reference back, Deuteronomy 18. And we believe and are sure that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. All right, we are coming in for a landing now. Put your tray tables up, buckle your seatbelts. Does this make sense to you now? The metaphor was the bread. The reason they went that direction, as Jesus said the day two, you're just following me because I gave you a free lunch. You don't really believe I'm the Messiah. Well, they said, well, if you provide another miracle, then, then we'll believe in you. I, we've got an idea. How about lunch? He said, quit thinking with your stomach. Bread which you consume will sustain you for a while. I'm the bread of life that will give you everlasting life. Believe in me. Believe in me. I am. Believe in me. I'm the Son of Man. Believe in me. 
no, you're not. You grew up in Nazareth. We, we knew who you were. <laughs> Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll never get to heaven. They get down here. Many of them left. Peter and the twelve were addressed. Peter made a great confession that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and brought the words of truth, just as Moses had foretold. Now, early in this chapter, we mentioned that Passover was coming. There's a reason that that was put in there. Just like with us, once we hit the 1st of November, everywhere, advertising, television, stores, Christmas lights are going up, Christmas trees are going up, we're focusing on Christmas. We hit the 1st of December, and we're all focusing on Christmas. Big holiday, our whole atmosphere is affected, our lives are affected. Well, likewise, Passover was the big celebration of the Jewish year. And the text mentioned that Passover was soon coming. So in the feeding of the 5,000 and the events of the day that we're talking about, in context with what was going on, this group was either on the way to Jerusalem for Passover or very soon would be. Passover was on their mind. The Passover meal, the Seder, the eating of the lamb, the fellowship, the memory. Jesus makes the point in all this. He says, I am. First of all, does that ring a bell with you? I am is the, God, the name that God told Moses to use when the children of Israel asked who sent them. Say, I am. So every time Jesus used the term, I am, it's on purpose. He says, I am living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. By the way, every one of these, he's claiming to be deity. I am the Lamb of God. I am the bread of eternal life. And it would be another year that Jesus would sit with the twelve in the upper room and explain the meaning of the Passover lamb. As he broke the matzah and handed it around, he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Guys, the focus is not this lamb on the table. I'm the lamb. Partake of me. As he poured that third glass of that wine, the cup of salvation, the Kazha Yeshua, and the cup was passed around, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. And then he said, and this is why we celebrated on Tuesday evenings, the night of this Passover Seder, as the Passover was approaching that week, Jesus said, every time you get together and do this, do what? The Passover Seder. Every time you do this, recognize it's not about the lamb. It's not about the blood on the doorposts. Those all point to me. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. It's all about Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? 